Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And so, I've got some good news for y'all. I have a guest. That's right. I have a guest on this episode, so you won't get to hear me for the whole hour. Well, you'll hear me, but I'll be asking questions to somebody that's very, very knowledgeable and very dedicated in her field. And she is the author slash editor, along with Jim Casey and Sarah Lynn Patterson of the book, The Colored Conventions Movement, Black Organizing in the 19th Century. And I really, I've always been fascinated with how we got to the 20th century, right? As far as organizing everything else, we, we, we grew up and those of us who are not in the state of Florida, we know, well, not in the current state of Florida, the previous state of Florida, I'm sure they, they, they did great jobs in teaching our history, but there were some parts that were left out. Uh, we're very familiar with the civil rights movement we we are living in the Black Lives Matter movement along with other groups in the United States that are fighting for equal rights and respect. Um, but what about our forefathers, right? How did they get us to this point? And so this book tells that story and also tells the story of how Dr. Foreman and a bunch of her colleagues got the information to put this book together. So it's really my honor to have Dr. Gabrielle Foreman uh, as a guest. And so I want to go ahead and, and introduce her. Uh, P. Gabrielle Foreman, PhD, is an award-winning professor of English, of African-American studies, and history. A leader in the field of black digital and public history, Dr. Foreman has been recognized for co-creating projects that build community and institutions while addressing pipeline and equity issues. She is founding faculty director of the nationally acclaimed Colored Conventions Project, founding co-director of the Center of Digital Black Research, uh, hashtag DigBlack or D-I-G-B-L-K, uh, she's a MacArthur Fellow, and she is the Paterno Family Chair of Liberal Arts at Penn State University. As a teacher, scholar, and mentor, Dr. Foreman is committed to creating, sustaining, empowering, and recovering collectives that are working not only for inclusion and equity, but for justice. She publishes extensively on issues of race, reform, and resistance in the 19th century, focusing on the past continuing hold on the world we inhabit today. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and distinct privilege to have as a guest, my homie, yes, she's from Chicago, Dr. P. Gabrielle Foreman. All right. Dr. Gabriel Foreman, how you doing, sister? I'm doing well. It's so good to be here. Well, it's good to have another homie 
uh, from Chicago. Southside. That's right. Well, now, which high school did you go to? Kenwood. Oh, okay. Rival then. I went to Limbloom. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I wouldn't call us rivals, but I'd call us compatriots. Well, in the <laughs> academic right. sense, we were compatriots, but it was like on the football field, I remember... I can't remember what year it was, but Kenwood and Lindblom had their homecomings the same day. Mm. So that was like a fun time in Chicago. We we, we turned it out. When I went to college, um, I, I, I had these flashbacks of Kenwood basketball. And I was like, and I went to a small liberal arts college. And I mean, Kenwood's basketball team would have taken this college team out any day. <laughs> so I'm a proud Kenwood Academy graduate. Now, did you go the whole time from kindergarten all the way through or did you go in just in high school? I just went in in high school. Okay. Yeah, they they didn't go all the way through when I was. Um, I, you you why are you aging me on you know? I'm just asking. I'm just asking. We didn't have all of that then. I mean, my school's a math and science academy. I couldn't have got in if I if it was a math and science academy now. So I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. We good at the history. We do. Right? That's that's, so that's exactly right. right. That's all right. That's exactly right. So speaking about history, let me. Um, I usually do a couple of things. Um, one, I, I, if I can find a quote from either uh, the work that's being done or uh, something that the person, the guest has said, I try to uh, throw that out there and, and kind of get the guest to talk about it. So this comes from the book, The Colored Conventions Movement, Black Organizing in the 19th Century, which I understand you just got through kind of doing a tour teaching and, and all that stuff based on the books. Is that correct? Yeah. I just went to um, almost all of the HBCUs that have Phi Beta Kappa chapters. And we talked about this and also um, a recent book that I've edited um, on David Drake, who was an enslaved poet and potter who is, whose pots are now in all of the major museums but we don't really recognize as um, someone who was an ancestor of the literary tradition as well. Um, but I do work on this political organizing, black political organizing, and then the ways in which our artistic and cultural traditions have off also made us visual griots um, and have told that history, preserved that history when archives, repositories, and others don't necessarily want to um, promulgate um, the survival, thriving um, strategies um, of our communities. Right, and uh, I saw that on the website, the the poetry book. But yeah. let me let me let me get this quote. This comes from the eighteen seventy three convention, and it says, "As long as a portion of citizens are thus excluded and restricted in their rights, it is folly to expect them to expect that portion to be contented." They must of necessity be a disturbing element and will not cease to agitate the body politic. Again, it puts upon the state a class of people that must remain poor and consequently unable to contribute, but little to support of the state, little to the support of the state, and yet which must be the most expensive to govern. Intelligence, it is well known, is much cheaper to the state than ignorance. To foster education, then, is the noblest work of the state. To oppose it among any classes of citizens is to oppose the state's highest interest. So before we really get into the book and, and 
in the history of the of the movements. Um, that was done a hundred. That quote was done at a convention a hundred and fifty years ago. How does that make you feel now that we're still mm-hmm. kind of dealing with those same issues? Education comes up in the convention movement over and over and over and over again, as does voting rights and political rights, jury rights. And um, I think we all need to grapple with the changing same. It's an expression in our community for a reason. We talk about the changing same all the time. I've never heard or I don't regularly hear that as um, an expression um, that comes out of other communities. Um, And that has to do with the fact that structural inequality and backlashes to progress. Um, And by progress, I mean full citizenship rights for um, the entire community. I mean, educational rights that express the history of not just one segment of the community or one story about one segment of the community, but a 360 degree analysis and apprehension and grappling um, with the history of this country um, has been structurally suppressed for uh, decades upon decades and upon decades until it turns into um, 150 years and more, right? So 1873 is, seems like um, it could be a genesis, um, but it is a midpoint, right? In um, in American educational, disinvestment, uh, not only economically, when um, Blacks are, are, paying, are, ta- are paying taxes, but not getting access to public education. The quote that you just read, I'm almost positive, comes out of the Delaware Colored Convention of 1873. Delaware itself, and I'm sitting right now in Wilmington, Delaware, did not have public high schools in the entirety of the state, in the southern portion of the state, until the eight to the 19. 19- 50s. So that, that 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 people who were living, people I know who are in their 80s, who were living in the state, had to move to Wilmington, where the only public high school was available in a segregated state until the 1950s. Now, this is while we are pl- paying taxes. So the kind of ways in which tax-paying Black citizens and residents have supplemented the economies of so many states while there is a script about the ways in which we draw down on the state, right, is a fiction. It's a historical fiction. We've contributed in relationship to tax dollars to states and municipalities that were not giving us access to all of the state state-sanctioned funding that um, are available to the rest of the citizenry. I say this all the time. I pay taxes um, to um, police, right, to to support police in in my state. Will I call them if something happens to me? How many of us have confidence calling the police when something happens to us, when we hear stories over and over again about how our um, particularly men who might be in our household, but also women over and over again can be endangered in any 
um, interaction with the police. This is not to say I haven't had wonderful interactions with the police who have been helpful, but the probability that it can end in life altering ways is so high that if we have mental health crises, if we have in our households, if we have, but we do not, but we still, we do not call or we think twice about calling, but we pay those taxes, right? We pay those taxes for them to serve another community in uncomplicated ways, not our community, right? And so thinking about the ways in which the quote that you just read articulates the ways in which exclusion happens rather than complete participation is something that we've had to grapple with from the very moment we got here, right? And worse, and worse. James Baldwin says that you have to be, and I'm, um, I am paraphrasing now, ignorant about history if you are not enraged as a black person, if you know anything about right, history. And so I think it makes me, you asked how I feel, it makes me motivated to see the response of convention goers, of black organizers. It makes me energized. It makes me responsible and obligated to a past, right? Of people who have struggled so deeply so you and I can sit here on the radio and say these things publicly rather than in hush harbors, right? And it also is always, right, um, enraging. It is also, um, also deeply disappointing. It is also demoralizing. I, and I think many organizing traditions tend to lead into the joy and the inspiration of the ancestors, right? Who continually contest this kind of inequality and induce in doing so, they affirm over and over again what we all know, which is the fullness, completeness, and joy of our own humanity. So in that spirit was kind of like how these conventions were set up. So in a, in a brief way, kind of talk about the history behind these conventions. I yeah. think you kind of exhibited some of the passion because a lot of people look at passion as a modern day thing, as a 20th century thing. And for some reason, they think that black folks in the 19th century were very, very passive. So in the book, you talk about there was a race riot in Cincinnati, 1829. And in the next year, this colored convention, uh, uh, the first one kind of uh, convened. So talk about from that point, how these conventions came about, what, what did they accomplish and, and I guess a follow-up question would be, why did we not learn about that early on? Why did we not learn about these conventions and all that stuff? And I'll kind of tack in a story once you give your answer on, on the second part of the question. You know, um, in 1829, there was what um, you just called a race riot um, and what I call um, a white mob um, that uh, gathered in full force in order to um, expel um, upwards of uh, one to 2,000 Black community members from Cincinnati. Um, and, you know, it, it, it is just amazing to me that um, 
when we hear the word, well, when many hear the word race riot, they often think about black people who are protesting. But we also have a, a whole history in this country of white race riots, of white mob violence. And this is connected to the genealogy and the continuance of that white mob violence. And um, for the first time, uh, people in, in three quarters of the free states of the US um, decided that they were gonna get together to hold a national convention. These were multi-day meetings led by black people for black people who sent delegates from their own states and their own communities and, and supported that. They had to organize a whole infrastructure to trans, to get people to these national meeting places. And there were, when we first started um, the Color Convention project, which you can find all of this information, uh, digital exhibits, and also the records at coloredconventions.org. That's coloredconventions.org, or you can just Google colored conventions and this will come up. Um, we thought that there were only 12 national conventions. That's all that had been gathered in books. And those books could go for like $2,300. Now they're all freely accessible online with, again, these digital exhibits that tell this story. Now, these folks got together in multi-day, both national and state conventions to organize for labor justice, for educational access, as we just talked about, for voting and jury rights, as we just talked about, and to protest, right, state-sanctioned violence. And just, you know, the hands-off attitudes when citizens organized violently against Black communities, raided Black communities, decimated Black communities, and the state did nothing about it at all. They started Black colleges. I just found out when I was speaking at Morehouse that Morehouse was and the first Georgia convention, state convention, the, the, the organizer of Morehouse was the first person to speak at the Georgia state convention. And they were both founded in the same church less than a year apart from each other. Talladega College, founded by colored conventions. Newspapers, black newspapers across the country started in colored conventions. We're talking about 70 years of black political organizing that most of us don't know about. We know about the anti-slavery right we, uh, movement, but we don't know about this huge um, uh, organized um, infrastructure, protest, um, legislative um, petitions, right, that came out of this black organizing effort in states and um, and national conventions. Yeah, and so, you know, when I was in college, at one time I was uh, associate editor for the newspaper, so I used to write the editorials. And I had written this editorial about the need for a black convention. So this is like in the 80s. And the president of the university was an avid reader of the school's newspaper. And he, if he saw an editorial he liked, he always used to call me into the office to talk about it. And so uh, he called me in and he was telling me about him being a participant in the con the convention in Gary. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so I was asking, well, how come we haven't done anything since then? He was, you know, basically just kind of saying, well, you know, everybody's kind of doing their own thing and all that. Um, you know, so, and then when you read a book like this and you hear about all the different things that was going on for you know, 
years. I guess, you know, to me, it always comes across as we, we criticize the daughters of the Confederacy, right, for creating this story about, you know, how heroic those people were and why we got statues all over the South, right? But we don't criticize the folks that were supposedly on our side when we hear about William Lloyd Garrison and all these, John Brown, all these abolitionists, but did nobody talk about these black conventions, right? So, you know, it's it's kind of a whitewashing on both sides. Now, that's my opinion. I, as As somebody who does this for a living, why do you feel that we weren't being told or we, we weren't being taught this? Um, there are two, there are three answers, I think, to that question. And I'm sure that other people have um, uh, other ideas to contribute as well. Um, one is the fact that people don't like to tell stories. The larger society doesn't like st um, stories about Black independence, Black autonomy, um, and it is a, a feel-good and a dangerous story to tell about Black interracial cooperation, right? It's feel-good for a segment of the population, and it's extraordinarily dangerous from another, right? So, um, but um, we have certainly moved in and out of eras where interracial cooperation is a useful narrative to tell, particularly, I would say, when... Um, black people are the junior partners, right, in that story. Frederick Douglass was involved in the colored conventions as a articulate, powerful, and contested leader for 40 years. From the time that he was in his 20s in 1843, when he shows up at the first national convention, to an amazing address, which we have recorded and made available in 1883. Uh, 40 years, he's meeting with black leaders, right, and Black influencers, and they're talking about what the communities need nationally, internationally, and locally. And that's not a story that is told often, right? We often tell, and I'm talking about in the most recent iterations of our uh, focus on Frederick Douglass, we are often, um, uh, the, 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 we is a weird word, communities and biographers often focus on his relationship to Lincoln, his relationship to Garrison his relationship to his second wife who was white, right? Like, so there's a, a bevy of sort of, of of white influencers. We don't hear about his relationship with uh, McCune Smith, right? We don't hear about his relationship with um, with um, Henry Neal Turner or, or, or Jonathan Gibbs, who was the first black secretary of education in Florida, a statewide office, right? The, 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 the same as the secretary of education and his son, um, and he worked um, in order to to found um, Florida and um, FAMU, right? So, so again, we a lot of this and the, and all of him, his he Jonathan Gibbs again, the Secretary of Education, and um, and his brother Mifflin Gibbs, the first black elected judge in the country, um, in Arkansas, are all part of this convention movement, right? So that's one reason. The second reason is that the records are scattered. And they are generally um, uh, preserved or often records of them are preserved in newspapers. And if they're scattered, there's no central repository. It's very difficult then to, to actually record and keep these records. So the technology caught up, right? 
And when technology made it possible for us to bring all of these records, make them freely available, right, as we're finding them on a digital platform, that made it easier to preserve the history. So technology and energy, right, um, is, you know, the energy of the project and, and the ability for us to get all of this um, um, digitally um, accessible is also um, one of the reasons that has happened. And then the third reason is about repositories and archives, which don't like to, uh, excuse me, don't like is not the right word, uh, have not until recently been structured in any way to preserve the histories of um, anybody but the elite in this country, right? And so it's harder to get women's history, including white women's history, preserved, right? But there have been archives that do some of that. The Schlesinger, right, for example, at Harvard is, is organized to do that. But they've had to turn recently. I mean, you know, we just got a national museum, right? right? That's right. You know, <laughs> right? So this question of turning to a more um, uh, inclusive um, history by our national repositories, by our cultural institutions. And I need to say this, right? Cultural institutions now to this day are run museum directors, 93% of them are white, right? So if we have cultural institutions which do not have Latinx people, right? Black people, Native American folks who are running them, who are in leadership, who are sitting on their boards of directors, right? Then it, it, it follows whose history is going to be preserved. Also because it's easier to go to the records and preserve it. I, so I say this to all his, everybody who's listening. If you have family records, do not throw them out. If you have family photographs, digitize them and get them to everybody in your family. If you want your, if you have a story that needs to be told, we need to also, and you have the money to preserve it, rich people give their records to people with the funding to actually put together finding aids archival assistance, et cetera. We also can step up, right? And be the preservers of our own history. It's not to say that we haven't. We've done it in churches. We've done it in, in, in cultural organizations, but we need to build on that history of success and preserve our own history. Ain't nobody gonna do it for us, right? And if they do, that will be sporadic, right? That will be contingent on right on other things. So. I, I would say again to our listeners, preserve your history, preserve the photographs, get them out to everybody um, in the family, uh, preserve your church histories, right? Your organizational histories, these matter and they are easily, easily forgotten and erased. So one of the things that you wanted to highlight um, in the book was the contribution of women in yes. the convention movement. Um, just, just kind of give a, a, a contextual reason why that focus needed to happen in this, in this document. So, um, we know that just because we, sh we don't show up in records doesn't mean we weren't there doing the work. Right. And I say that we as both we black women and we black people, Right. That's also we queer black people or we any subgroup, right, of a group. We know that we are there doing that work, but it may not show up in the records. And in the delegates of the convention movement, something like 99% of them are men. 
Now that said, people like Francis Harper, who is the most popular poet until Paul Lawrence Dunbar and, and wrote four novels, she shows up, she shows up in the convention you quoted, right? She shows up in many conventions. Marianne Shad Carey, first black woman, it's the 200th anniversary of her birthright this year, by the way. Um, she is the first black woman editor of a newspaper in North America. She's the first black woman to attend law school. She shows up in the conventions. So there are women who show up in the conventions, but there are many more who are anonymized. So we don't get their names. It'll say like a, co a committee of the ladies, right? A committee of the women. And so we know, and we asked the question in this wonderful exhibit called, where did they stay? What did they eat? That you don't bring 500 delegates into a town where they don't have, you know, abilities to stay at the local hotels, right? Or the local hotels aren't going to want a whole bevy, right, of, of Black people um, uh, staying there. That there had to be a complete infrastructure built. And we know who did that work, right? And so the infrastructure building of political organizing is done by women. And we wanted to center that work. Somebody uh, says, Derek Spires, who's a, an amazing um, historian um, and literary historian, says, if you know it to be true, go look for it, right? And um, never trust the records and never trust records of exclusion. Ask the critical questions and then answer them and answer them collectively. I mean, I should say that I am here today, but I am standing in for a group of um, uh, Color Convention Project leaders, graduate students, cultural arts partners, right? You know, we're a group of about um, 35 people every year changing who do this work together. We cannot preserve our histories without doing that work collectively and in principled ways. Right, and that quote I read, uh, uh, based on what I was reading, they attribute that to Ms. Harper. So um, I just wanted to, because it's important you know, a lot of times we we think for some reason that ancestors before were just totally different human beings than we are. And it's like we know that we have the meeting after the meeting. We know that That's we right. have the hangout. We know even from studying pictures that Dr. King recruited people from taverns, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, by being a pool hustler, you know what I'm saying? So it's like we we see, we know what we've done in our time and for some reason we can't fathom that our folks did the same exact thing. Our ancestors did the same exact thing. So I'm, that's why I wanted you to highlight that. Now, uh, we're up against it, but I'm going to get these two questions in because I think they're important in the context of, of this show and, and what we're trying to do and what you're trying to do. So do you think, since I said that, gave that last statement, do you think that we have a mindset in the 21st century to initiate these types of gatherings? I say yes. And my argument goes to, for example, like when the committee would say, we're going to address, you know, we come up with the address committee and they come up with how we're going to address the slaves or address the convention. I say the modern day equivalent of that is the urban league state of black America that they put out every year. Right. Right. Um, I look at Essence Fest that we have every year, the way that it's set up and all that stuff. Yeah, they, you got entertainers, but they have all these discussions about a myriad of issues. And I look at Essence Fest as a modern day version hmm. of, a, of a convention. 
so that's my argument. I think we have the capability. And then, of course, social media kind of changes a little way where we can have virtual conventions and all that stuff. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? Are you more negative, more positive? How, how do you feel? I um, I was called, and I think part of this is about calling. I was called to preserve the history of the people who came before us. I am um, not a historian of the present. I am a organizer in my own little sphere of the present. But I am interested from my own personal contribution for the short time that I am here to be able to have your listeners, our organizers, our Congress people, our community organizers, our um, cultural griots use this history in order to make this moment a more just one, a more equitable one, a more fair one. And I try to know my lane, right? <laughs> and I, uh, I, um, I am willing to take direction from the youth who are organizing today. Um, I am happy to suggest to them that we should know the entirety of our history, much of it which has been erased, and that it is extraordinarily important to know how structured, how, um, there were legislative addresses. You just talked about the committee of addresses. Many of these conventions changed their time of organizing. You look at conventions in Iowa where there were a lot of black conventions. Iowa, lots of black conventions. And they, and they meet in the winter. Why are they meeting in the winter, you have to ask. Ain't nobody trying to travel in Iowa. We're both from Chicago, all right? We know we know better than to try to travel in January and February in, in the Midwest. Some some days you, you can't even cross the border into Iowa is so bad. I, I know. Okay. I know. <laughs> so, but, but the reason that's happening is because there are legislative sessions, state legislative se sessions happening at the same time, and they want to be in the paper at the same time as the legislative session is in paper. So they are strategically, tactically, right, aligning their meeting times, and then they create an address to the legislators or to the people of the state, and then they also create an address to the Black people in the state. They're doing both at the same time, right? So how do we create structures of influence? Where are the pressure points? And what is the, um, the, the weight and the freight of denial right, that we need to take into consideration, considering this long history of smart, strategic, everybody was involved in these conventions. Every name you know of Black men, right, in the 19th century are named in these conventions. They are going together in these conventions, all the legislatures, right, after Reconstruction or during Reconstruction, right, all of the major preachers. I mean, I I, I I very rarely use the word all, but there are so few exceptions, right, in this history of who is involved. And, um, and what does it mean to have a history in this country that has denied 70 years of Black political organizing before we get to the urban lake, 
before we get to the NAACP, before we get to Black Lives Matters, before we get to the civil rights movement, right? Before we get to, to uh, the, Uni the United Negro College Fund, before we get to the Legal Defense Fund, right? Before we get, I mean, we can just keep on talking about those befores. We need to consider, I think carefully, soberly, a history of denial of so many strategies and reasonable requests and organizing, right, for full citizenship rights and dignity and black dignity in this country. And this history calls upon us to do that with even more sober reflection and more sober tactical um, consideration. Right. And I, and I, and I'm, I'm a student of history. I believe that, um, you know, you, in order to understand where you're at right now, you have to know where you came from. And, and, and so I just, you know, so people ask me questions. I've lived in Atlanta. I grew up in Chicago. I lived in Mississippi for 30 some years mm -hmm. and I know something about the history of all of these places. So mm -hmm. I can understand how to move and how to operate in them. Right. And I think it's vital that everybody does that. So I appreciate the work that you do, but I wanted to highlight something that ties into your work before we get out off the air. And that's Douglas day. Uh. So based on, you know, what I've read, it was like, you kind of go about getting the research in the same strategic fashion that people organize these conventions. And you have this one particular day, Douglas Day. Kind of talk to the listeners about Douglas Day and what what's the significance of that. Sure. Douglas Day was founded by Mary Church Terrell, who was also the founder of um, the National Association of Colored Women, one of the many founders of the National Association of Colored Women, when Douglas died. And so, again, this kind of ways in which Black men and women have been functioning together in order to create um, and preserve our history is important. And then it was the colonel of Black History Week by Carter G. Woodson that turned into Black History Month. So Douglas Day is February 14th. Um, we call it a day of collective love for Black history because it's on Valentine's Day, which is Douglas's chosen birthday because he didn't know what his birthday was because he was enslaved um, as soon as he was born. So that's the history of Douglas Day as a holiday. As we move from History Day or from, from Frederick Douglass's birthday, Douglas Day to Black History Week to Black History Month, the origin got lost. And, and Jim Casey, who is a co-director of the center, and Denise Berger, um, and a whole group of people um, at the center that I um, run with colorconventions.org and Color Conventions Project, um, went back and decided, let's make this a day of collective transcription and learning. And so last year, when we transcribed the records of Marianne Shad Carey, whom I uh, said earlier was the first black woman, is known as the first black woman newspaper editor in North America, is first black woman to go to law school in the continent too, in the North American continent as well. We went and digitized a lot of her papers. The family had papers, Archives Ontario, she went to Canada. Archives Ontario had her papers. All kinds of people, Howard, Mor Howard's Moreland Spingarn um, had some of her papers. So we digitized a lot of those papers and then 7,000 people came together to help transcribe those records. Why do we transcribe together? Because then we can do searches. You can find this, this material easily. Um, so we did all of her paper, the Provincial Freeman. We've worked with the uh, Douglas Day, has worked with the Smithsonian Museum, with the National Museum of 
uh, the African American, the National Museum of African American um, Culture and uh, Art and Culture. We've also um, worked with uh, the African American Museum of Philadelphia, with Moreland Spingarn, with lots of different partners, the Library of Congress. We're in, um, in the midst of a partnership with them right now in order to, to preserve, transcribe the records. But more importantly, we do outreach, or as importantly, we do outreach to Black organizations. We have birthday cakes. We say, go to Black Bakers, right, to get, we honor the principles of the conventions themselves, which were about doing work collectively and supporting Black community efforts and entrepreneurial, right, um, uh, organiza organizations as well. So we say, go to Black Bakers. And if you won't send, you know, do an MOU that says that you'll actually do some of this work, reach out to Black people, right? Uh, Dig Black is the name of our center. It is digitize Black records, excavate Black history, dignify Black scholarship, love Black people, right? And Black people, one of our principles is that Black people need to be central to the resurrection and the preservation of our own histories, right? And so when we are calling for accountability in white academic spaces, in cultural spaces, Black people have always been the preservers of our own history. But in academic spaces, that is often not attended to. So we try to make people accountable to outreach to communities who have been doing this work in principled ways for many years um, and to center right the history of Black organizing and not a paternalistic, I would say condescending um, uh, uh, situating of Black people as junior members in the preservation of our own history and in the organization of um, our own rights, which, I, as you said earlier, is one of, I think, the things that emerges as part of the shadow legacy of the abolitionist movement, the histories that we've inherited about the abolitionist movement, right, that somehow we're junior members in our, in our, own, um, in our own history. We are not. And this book and coloredconventions.org situates ourselves as agents of organizing for American democracy, for American citizen building, right? And for Black people's full inclusion in a vision that is worth fighting for, but that often has been denied and not by us. So you've mentioned coloredconventions.org. Tell people how else, like how they can get the book, how uh, they can contact you and and get more involved in, in this project. Thank you. You can um, uh, follow me on Twitter at Prof Gabrielle, P-R-O-F Gabrielle. You can also um, follow us at um, on Twitter at, at CCP underscore dot org, or you can just do color conventions, Twitter, and you know, and it'll show up. Um, uh, the Center for Black Digital Research is, um, you can Google that and find that we have both Douglas Day and our new Black Women's Organizing Archive, um, as well as coloredconvention.org, all available there. And I just want to shout out all of the collective people again who are doing this work with me, who are leading the effort um, of arts partnerships. Um, we got a mural out that just came up, the first public arts um, uh, mural to commemorate the Colored Conventions movement in the city in which it was founded. Um, arts partnerships curriculum building. And I should say to any teachers or people who know teachers that our digital exhibits all have teaching tabs, or most of them have teaching tabs and a K through 12, as well as questions for college students. This is easy history to incorporate into your classrooms, into, to, into any kind of cultural, to National History Day, to, uh, to anything that you want to do that has to do with finding out more about, about Black history. 
those exhibits are there. They have uh, visualizations, data, maps, primary sources, newspapers. Everybody who goes to them seems to love them. So uh, please visit us. And, um, and we're just so happy to be here today to talk about this work and its importance in relationship today to today. Well, Dr. Gabrielle Foreman, I appreciate you, one, coming onto the podcast, but more importantly, I appreciate you doing this kind of work. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it is a calling, and I appreciate that you accepted the calling. So, so thank, for, thank you again for being on. Thank you for providing us an audience and for all the work that you do. And uh, together we will trust it to, uh, to the next generation to carry it on. Yes, ma'am. All right, guys, and and we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So I want to thank Dr. Foreman for taking the time out of her schedule. Uh, to be on the podcast and to talk about this project. And I really encourage y'all to either get the book, go to coloredconventions.org or do both, and just really learn about how organized we were as black people 150 years ago. Um. You know, because like I was saying in the interview, the, the depiction is like, well, we didn't all of a sudden become organized till, you know, after the Civil War. And it was white folks doing the fighting for us. And as most history reveals, that wasn't the truth, right? That we were fighting for our own freedom basically ever since we were brought on the soil so you know that's this just is another layer and another uh resource to see how organized and well we find and it just the organizations you know because i stumbled on some of this stuff just on wikipedia right you know there are people submitting histories of organizations that were out there and just to see the legacies right you know um, we always look in in white communities as far as legacy and how we talk about legacy admissions in college and talk about this white privilege that has been passed on to generations but black folks have legacy also and yeah, I mean, just so let me just say this Malcolm X didn't just appear out of nowhere, <laughs> Martin Luther King didn't just appear out of nowhere, W.B. Du Bois didn't just appear out of nowhere. Do the research, find the connections, understand the history. Because when you understand the history, I'm telling you, when you understand the history, We'll be able to navigate this stuff. We'll be able to deal with these people, right? So anyway, 
that's uh, thank you, Dr. Foreman. But speaking about dealing with these people, let me tell you this. Well, it's not an accurate story. It's my interpretation of the story as it was revealed to me. Part of it may be factual, but whatever is not factual is not because of something deliberate. It's just, I'm human. I'm not a tape recorder. But, excuse me, it is something. Oh, wow. Um, I guess they didn't want me to tell the story. It is something that happened. Right? So anyway, yeah, I'm going to tell it. You can't stop me from telling it. So anyway, it was 1967. In the state capital of Mississippi, the legislative session started And for the first time since Reconstruction, a black man was walking into the building as a duly elected representative. He's from Holmes County. From what I understand, he had the option of either running for county superintendent or the state legislature, and people encouraged him to run for the state legislature. And he won. So he got in there. And the very first day, he noticed something that was different compared to the rest of his colleagues. He had a desk to himself. Whoever authorized it, the speaker, whoever, the porters, however however it was coordinated, they literally saw a historical desk, a desk that has basically been part of the legislature since they've been in that building in 1903. They sawed it in half so that no white member would have to sit next to this new black member. And, you know, they kept, you know, it was the first day and wasn't really a whole lot going on. And, uh, you know, but you could hear folks talking about them, folks in the gallery, and they were, you know, using the N-word and all this stuff, and other members were being disrespectful. It seems like it was something about him wanting to be recognized for something and the speaker wouldn't recognize him. And then back then, you know, if you were a freshman, it didn't matter if you were black or white or whatever, you didn't get recognized by the speaker anyway, right? Which made it more convenient, you know, for them to not recognize him. Well, you know, it's just custom and it ain't got nothing to do with race, right? So, needless to say, he kind of got fed up with all that. He was, he was, he was like, he was a proud man. He said, I, I don't have to put up with all that. 
So he left. He walked out of the building. They were still in session from what I gathered. He left. And he had made it to the parking lot. He was about to get in his truck when a member stopped him. A white member. He said, I know it was rough on you today, but I'm going to tell you something. And you're a grown man, you can do what you want to. He said, if you get in that truck and you drive off, won't be another one that looked like you coming in this building anytime soon. If you leave, there won't be any others that look like you coming in. Just think about it. You know, and guy walked away. So, that man had a decision to make. Did he think that that white man was blowing smoke? <sighs> or was he valid? And is it really even about me? So, needless to say, that brother came back to the chamber and he ended up staying there 36 years. He left as the speaker pro tem of the Mississippi House of Representatives and one of the longest serving members in the history of the state. And all of us who came in after 1967 stand on the shoulders of a gentleman named Robert Clark. I had a distinction of serving with Mr. Clark and Mr. Clark's son, talking about legacy, right? So, Eric, why, why today you want to bring up this story? So I want to fast forward to this year. And we already had a, episode about the members in Tennessee. So now in Montana, there's a state representative named Zoe Zephyr. Zephyr. Uh, she is a member of the trans community. And she is the first trans member to be elected to the legislature. Maybe to even hold any kind of office in Montana. At the state level, for sure. So, her presence became a problem. Because in Montana, they wanted to pass all this legislation to limit health care for trans children or teenagers that identified as trans, the health care that they needed, the gender affirming care. Uh, of course, to deal with the sports, public facilities. You know, they were running through the whole nine yards. And so Representative Zephyr got tired of it. 
basically. And she spoke up. And she basically said, when you pray tomorrow, when you do your invocation tomorrow, I hope you see the blood that's going to be on your hands. That's what she said. After she said that, the Speaker of the House of Montana, whoever this coward is, <laughs> see, I, 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 I pick up names of people, but as I'm getting older and I realize that if you're a minion, if you're doing work that's not of, if I know your name, okay. If I don't know your name, even better. If I do know your name, it's because I'm zero in on you and I really want to do what I can to make sure that you don't serve in public office ever again, right? I don't care if I don't vote in Montana. I don't care if I'll ever visit Montana, right? At some point in time, people that say they are of goodwill have to get rid of people that are not. I don't care how red the state is. I don't care how blue the state is. I don't care how purple the state is. At some point in time, people have to look past party and start looking at character and destroying these people and making sure that they never, ever serve in public office again, especially those of us in the black community, right? There ain't too many of us in Montana, but nonetheless, even in Montana, as red of a state as it supposedly is supposed to be, Democrats get elected like Representative Zephyr, right? They've had Democrat. There's a Democratic U.S. senator. There's there's been Democratic governors. Montana is a place that has voted for people that they think are in the best interest of Montana. Historically. And that's just an assessment from far away. That has nothing to do with me actually stepping on soil. Right? I don't even think I've even flown over Montana. Alone driven. And I've been to Washington State and all that, but I, Oregon, but Whatever path I took, I, I probably didn't even fly over Montana and overdrive it. So I have known nothing about the state other than what I see and what I have seen. And based on the people that I have seen come out of Montana, whether I agree with them politically or not, they would never do what the Speaker of the House did and especially not in the cowardly way that the speaker did it, right? So basically the speaker made a decision. He asked the rules, the parliamentarian or whatever, could he ignore? Because this is right on the heels of Tennessee, so they don't want to be stupid like the Tennessee legislature. He doesn't want to be labeled like his colleague and the Speaker of the House in Tennessee trying to kick her out. So he's going to do what they did to Robert Clark in Mississippi. They're just going to ignore her. I'm not going to recognize her for anything. 
you are going to pass bills that would have an impact directly on her life. People in her community. And you will deliberately ignore her. Can you imagine? Let's change the M's from Montana to Mississippi. And let's change Zoe Zephyr to say, I'll say Kathy Sykes, since Kathy's no longer a member, but Kathy served. Can you imagine if the, and Kathy was the only black woman in the legislature. Can you imagine? Or even just Robert Clark. When we tell the story about Robert Clark, if we drew a hypothetical like about Kathy and say, well, Jay, she can't, the speaker will ignore her. Right? Or the speaker will ignore him. Black folks in Mississippi would go bananas. They would be, they would be mad, even if they couldn't do anything. They'd be mad. Just their anger from frustration would permeate the building. Let alone whatever marching, whatever protests. TV shows, radio shows, black newspapers, everything. Folks would be losing their minds. So much so that the national media would do it. Right? But in Montana, they think, well, you know, she she's kind of an aberration. Ain't nobody else going to be up here after her, we'll send a message, right? We're not going to tolerate that here. So we're going to silence her. And you say, well, Eric, because there's, there's some people that listen to this podcast and other podcasts that black hosts moderate And they always want to know, well, what's in it for black folks? And my response to them always is pay attention. Pay attention. Because we've gotten to a point now where, and I talked about this In a previous podcast, when we were talking about guns, these people, this element that has permeated our politics and have taken root in the Republican Party, because there's a lot of Republican friends that are probably mad at me and all you just bashing us and all this stuff. Pay attention. Because if you paid attention, these folks wouldn't have got hold in your party. Right? Fannie Lou Hamer and them kicked them out of the Democratic Party. And you embraced them because you wanted to be empowered so much. Well, when you bring in garbage, <laughs> that's all it's going to produce is garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. Right? That element, once they got kicked out of the Democratic Party in the South, should have been left to wither and die. But because people need votes, for some reason they're a commodity. And people think they can control them and influence them. And that's what Fox News tried to do. (sighs) Instead of you wagging the tail, now the tail's wagging you. 
So this faction that is developed in American politics that gets justified by preachers who are more concerned with vanity than they are the word, right? They want to be liked and they want to be accepted rather than teaching the gospel. So they cater the, their their version of the gospel to these people, right? These people have twisted and manipulated and so easy prey is black folks, right? But now they got to get white folks that don't conform. So, okay. Yeah. Some kids who get killed in elementary school. Yeah. We'll have to kick a white member out or at least give the semblance that we're going to vote a white member out. Put her through the rigor. Or we'll just ignore another member because her femininity doesn't fit our definition of femininity, right? You know, we got somebody who lost the athletic match who has now become a hero because she can say, well, the person that beat me ain't really a woman. That, 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 I mean, that fit right into the narrative. That's, that's how they get people. I don't know who Riley, I couldn't tell you Riley Gaines from whatever. I'm not a Michael Phelps and Mike Mark Spitz about the only swimmers I know, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, uh, there was one that ended up being the broadcast with Ladonna De Verona. All the all these people, right? And I've probably seen this woman swim. I probably rooted for her in the Olympics, but that one sour grapes moment, and now it's like, oh, it's so unfair, and and all this stuff. Bruh, <laughs> kids in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, when they play kids from other teams, they have to trust that the other countries have accurate documentation of their birthright. Because there was one year that these, these little league kids were playing 18-year-olds. And for a moment, the 18-year-olds were having their way until they ran into some really good kids, young kids. And he took them out. And then they realized, oh, well, they they might have been cheating. Bruh, cheating happens. If you want to say she cheated, well, if you put it in the category, well, cheating happens. She didn't cheat. She told you. I'm competing. I'm here. And to say, well, she competed because she couldn't win as a man. Eh, I don't know. I don't know. I think she competed as a woman because she believes she's a woman, right? And I'm sorry that you felt that you lost the chance to win a championship because of her. I don't know. But it's that sour grapes that they these this faction preys upon. And that's how they build their network. They build, they, they find the disaffected. They find the angry. They find the, the, 
the ones who felt that their privilege has been taken away. And they prey on that. And they build this network through social media, through TV, whatever, through the church even. But now we've gotten to a point where the pool is limited, right? They, they, they realize that they don't have an infinite source. So the next thing to do when they see that they are outnumbered is find ways to silence. So we ban books. We ban social media platforms. We ban conversations. Right? We kick people out of elected positions. We silence people in elected positions. And we allow society to run amok and give them guns so that we can be prepared, right? So we can start fight clubs, secret fight clubs, and we can we can have these gun clubs and these munition clubs, right? So that we can be ready for the war that we want to happen. Because the only way we can really maintain control now is we've we've got to we've got to take these people out, and we're just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing the envelope until either our folks snap and do like they did back in the day when. We talked about Cincinnati, we talked about Tulsa, we talk about Chicago or or anywhere that these these white mobs decide to attack black people. Atlanta. Right? Either that happens or either the black folks or the Latino folks even the Muslim folks or Asian folks or LGBTQ folks, somebody going to snap, which they were kind of a hoping this narrative in Nashville, right? They're talking about, well, I want to see the manifesto. They want to see this trans woman write this angry letter about Christians. That's, that's what they want. They want it to be a hate thing. Not for the because the the shooter is dead, so it's not about adjudicating that person on a hate crime. They just want to have that one manifesto, that one moment where somebody from the trans community said that they hated Christians. That's what they want, so they can justify silencing a representative Zephyr, banning trans people from different segments of society. All they need is one, right? But now if we say in the black community, well, all cops ain't nothing because of one cop, that's not fair. 
But they're the ones that think that they're, they, they, they control the rules. So it's like, well, no, you can't say because of one cop, all cops are bad. But if we get this one manifesto from this trans shooter, this trans mass shooter, then we can we can label all these trans people as being violent and and belligerent. It's, it's, it's this new thing coming. The game is as old as America itself. The problem is now is that there are more avenues to expose people to the game than ever before. And there's more avenues to try to bring people into the game ever before. But what these folks are realizing is that there's more people that are hip to the game than ever before. And they're realizing that they can't recruit like they want to. So we're going to, we're going to start the process of elimination. We'll silence you. We'll censor you. We'll kill you. Whether if you're delivering groceries or you're looking for your, your brothers. Cause we're that afraid of you. I guess those that couple in St. Louis in the mansion were afraid of these black people marching down the street that they decided to show what kind of weapons they had. Same mentality. I don't want to tell my child who's be 21 now but I mean I don't remember telling them excuse me you can't knock on a door mm. excuse me you can't you know I mean, people were joking about, well, you know, Halloween's canceled now and all this stuff. And a guy who was doing something to make extra money, and he's been shot at. He's like, I'm not doing that. So what kind of dilemma does that put him in? He's got to find something else to do to get some extra money. Right? Because he's afraid for his life. But that's what this element of people want. They want us to be afraid. Mm. Bless you. Mm. They want us to be afraid. They want us to be terrified. They want us to give up. They don't want us to push anymore. They want to label anybody that fights for the rights of black people and LGBTQ people and AAPI people and Latino people, right? They want, they want us to be silenced. They want us to be isolated. They want us to be pushed out. Excuse me. And they condemn all of these 
media outlets and social media sites that give us platforms to continue our conversation, to fight our fight. It's no different, (laughs) right? It's no different than what they did to Marcus Garvey. It's, it's, it's no different. It's no different than what they have done to anybody. Medgar, Martin, Fanny, Lou, anybody. Malcolm. Anybody that dares to speak in our behalf. Farrakhan, right? Jeremiah Wright, anybody. These people can say the most ridiculous, asinine things in the world. Talking about these white folk. Marjorie Taylor Greene says something stupid every day on Twitter. Every day. But if a black person of higher prestige says something that some white folks ain't comfortable with, You already know there's a faction of white folks that despise the black man being in that position anyway, they're a black woman. But if you say something that they slightly a little uncomfortable with, then the black folks are supposed to denounce him. But nobody white is denouncing Marjorie Taylor Greene. The white community is not doing that. They're doubling down, actually. Even the people that think she's stupid, not really denouncing her. They're just using her as a platform to say that they're right. But somebody black, they want us to like totally isolate them, alienate them. Don't even have them on their, on our timeline. Right. They want us to ostracize black people that they don't like. And they want the black people to do the work for them. But white folks, crazy white folks, have free reign. And I say no. I don't know what Representative Zephyr has to do. But I pray to God that she and her friends find it. And I hope that it destroys the Speaker of the House in Montana, politically. I really do. You know, I, I just take that personal because as somebody that was elected to serve, how dare you tell me that my constituents can't have a voice because you don't like me? I told you you would have blood on your hands? Really? That's that's that terrible? Or are you that guilt-ridden? I'm just saying. You know, you kicked out black men in Tennessee because they used a bullhorn because you wouldn't wreck. You cut off their microphones. And all they wanted to do was recognize the people in the gallery. You accelerated it when you told them they couldn't talk. 
See, we're at a point now where these folks have to realize either they need to surrender or accept their fate. Yeah, I'm calling it. Either they need to give up white supremacy, they need to surrender it, or they need to accept their fate when the rest of the country dismantles it totally. Because that's going to happen, and it's going to happen in my lifetime. Because it's had a rain for over 400 some years. It's it's time. It's it's been time for it to be over with. But folks are not backing down, and folks realize what's happening, and folks are figuring out ways to shut you down on every corner. They're taking away your idols, right? Every chance that they get. They're dispelling your myths every chance that they get. They're making sure that the truth is told from all people, whether it's from indigenous folks, whether it's from Latino folks, whether it's from black folks, whether it's from AAPI folks that settled in this country and contributed to building this country. And that's another thing I want to say real quick. There's some black folks got mad because John Leganzamo said something about Latinos built this country. Get over that. <laughs> because half of the country, as we know it, was actually Spanish territory. It was actually Mexico, right? So to say that they didn't have a claim in building this country would be asinine and stupid. So let me say that again. Black folks contributed immensely to building this nation as we know it. Latinos contributed immensely to building this nation as we know it. AAPI people contributed immensely to see this, to build this country up, to expand it even. And yes, in the midst of all of these different races and ethnicities, there are people that identify as LGBTQ who back then had to kind of keep it under wraps. But they existed and they contributed, right? And so for you white folks to say, well, we contributed too, you did. You did contribute to it. And you created the problem that the rest of us are trying to fix. You created the disease, the poison of white supremacy that we're trying to cure. So, yeah, take credit for that, too. But understand that it's it's ending. It's over with. You're crying on Fox News. Your protestations on truth, social and whatever that other one starts with a P, whatever it is, parlor, I think it is, whatever, or, or even Elon Musk's attempt to make Twitter, you know, fascist light. I don't, I don't know. You know, all I know is, is that your time is running out. It's over with, it's done. The clock is ticking. The fat lady is warming up. 
As a matter of fact, I think she's already got a hold of the microphone. She's just waiting for her cue to start singing. It's over. And in my lifetime, it'll be done. You will be relegated to your proper point, either in history or in the grave. But it's over with. Because shooting people through doors, banning books, lasers from the sky, all that stupid stuff, people don't have the time for it anymore. People want something new. I'll say this in closing. Somebody wanted to point out the fact that there was a poll out that 70% of people didn't want Joe Biden to run for president. That same poll also said that 60% of the folks didn't want Donald Trump to run for president either. People want something new. They don't want to make a decision between two old white guys anymore. Fact. And whether one is more empathetic than the other one, one is more sane than the other one, one is not less is not likely to be criminally indicted than the other one. Whatever. <laughs> People want something new. And it is coming. And you can't ban enough books. You can't shut down enough or censor enough songs. You can't shut down TV shows quick enough or movies. You can't silence people. You can't kick them out of elective bodies. It's not going to work. And you're not going to be able to shoot your way out of it either. I know that's your that's your go-to backup plan, but you're not going to be able to shoot your way out of it either. So just accept the fact that it's over and stop being mean and just go out gracefully like something that's outdated always should. Until next time. All right. So um, just some housekeeping. Um, I have started a Patreon page. So if you... um, want to subscribe be a patron for the um, podcast you can go to I guess patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming podcast and uh, that that should get you there or if you you have the app or whatever Uh, but yeah so that's a new thing starting to um, trying to do the Patreon thing. So, you know, if if people subscribe, then we'll give them a shout out on the podcast. Um, and uh, hopefully that'll get to be a thing, right? A weekly thing. 
<clears throat> and there's other ways to sponsor a podcast through uh through uh Spotify for podcasters as a donation. You can go to the website uh momenteric.com and uh you can you can find all the different ways that you can uh donate to the podcast. Um you know, if you want to support it, if you don't want to go the Patreon route, you can go other ways. But I'm just trying to open it up so that, um, you know, give people an opportunity to show their support. Um, and, you know, if you appreciate what, what I'm trying to do, um, wouldn't hurt. Um and especially now, since I guess the advertising piece has ended uh, with the new ownership. So that's the other thing I'm making the appeal is, you know, spread the word. Uh, try to get this podcast listened to by more people, by enough people, so you can start advertising. Um yeah, so I mean, I just I just want to throw that out there. I appreciate those of y'all who do listen. I appreciate those of y'all that do give feedback. I'd hope that, you know, we continue to spread the word and continue to, to build this out. I, I really would be honored if, if you took advantage of opportunities to subscribe or sponsor this podcast financially. But, you know, as long as you're listening and as long as you're learning something from it, I'm, I'm grateful too. So, uh, I just wanted to throw that out there. And, uh, as I said earlier, catch y'all next time.